You're starting, Kim, but I just also wanted to just say a warm welcome to everybody. I just throw my voice in there, officially saying welcome, welcome, welcome to everybody. Definitely. And even in this moment, a couple more people came on, so that was perfect. Okay, so we'll go ahead and get started um, with this uh, sixth session, sixth and final session of this class called the Dharma Life. And as usual, we'll start with um, just a review of what was um, suggested over the last couple of weeks, which was to look for an opportunity to do this uh, inner, outer, present, past, all combinations of that. Um, in the case of an exercise, in the case of blame, and curious if anybody did that and how it worked. Um, there was also a reading, um, It Is All Empty, from the uh, Monastery Within, and also the Anatta Lakana Sutta. So a lot on emptiness and exploration of that. So it's our part of our wisdom class. So does anybody have any anything to add from all of that? I'm finding it difficult to uh, my emptiness when I feel like I did something stupid. Okay. I didn't quite hear that, actually. Uh, my volume was too low. I, I said, uh, like an exercise uh, for contemplating emptiness by thinking of conditions. Um, I, when, when bringing that to a situation that I like really think, oh, I did something really stupid. Uh, it's very difficult to apply the emptiness to that as opposed to like something more, um, something easier, like eating food and experiencing that as empty or something pleasant and easier. But if it's like, ah, oh, that was really stupid. I wish I didn't do that. Or, I can't believe I did that. Feeling embarrassed. Uh, it's difficult to like even break it down into conditions for me. Mm -hmm. That's understandable. Yeah, where we have more charge on a situation. So yeah, I think the invitation of that exercise could be that it could be done in any circumstances where it seems useful. Yeah, and I think what uh, Vipasco just described is when we are feeling embarrassed or we're feeling like we're blaming ourselves, there's a, this stickiness, this uh, concreteness of the, this kind of uh, me, Kind of thing and that's exactly when it's the most difficult to kind of like unpack yeah evie i saw your hand i would love to hear anybody else's interpretation of the sutta so i i read it a while ago because as i said i just like finished with this retreat but i just like skimmed it again to try to remind myself but it reminded me that I never really understood it that well, but maybe, I mean, so what I got out of it was, I think like the whole form thing, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, but then the other stuff, my paraphrase of it, and I don't know if this is at all on target is like, you know, your feelings, your thoughts, like all that stuff, that's not you. Like don't get to, which, which is sort of consistent with this, general idea of, you know, if you're aware, like, you know, that, that there's this sort of vast awareness that all of this stuff happens in and like, 
just let it float by and you're going to feel a lot better than if you like, you know, get all involved in it. That's my like thoroughly colloquial uh, interpretation, but I don't, but I feel like there's probably a lot in that pseudo that I completely missed. That sounds good. That's really <laughs> <laughs> what about the form part? Even if the rest of it was like, Oh yeah, some of the technical language in there is, can be a little bit unusual. Um, in that sutta, form really refers to, generally it means materiality, but we could say just the body, you know, for the purposes. That's what we mostly attach to as a self in the material world. So it's meant to refer to the body. It's actually quite, that's quite prosaic in a, in a sense. It's like, it says, you can't make your body be how you want it to be. Does anybody doubt that? You know, could you be 10 years younger than you are? Could you be taller than you are? No, these things can't be willed. And so that's one of the very, you know, kind of something that we can meditate on. We're meant to actually reflect on that. You're right, I can't make myself be that way, my body be that way. Well, and there's also the thing of the body is sort of a, I mean, I remember when I was very young and struggling with eating disorders and stuff and sort of getting some clarity about various things. And uh, I mean, before, I'm sure many, many people have said this, but I thought of it independently. <laughs> like the body is only a house, you know, that like, it's like the experience that goes on in here, it sort of could be happening anywhere and I don't know if that's relevant, but it seems like maybe it's relevant. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Evie, can I ask you if, if the body is a house, then are, um, is there a sense that there's an occupant, a resident in that house? Well, Diana, <laughs> um, I mean, I think when I was you know, 16 years old, I would have said yes. And now what I would say is the thing that I just said a few minutes ago, which is that there's all kinds of stuff going on in the house, except um, most of it really isn't, you know, it, it's also sort of not self, right? It's not like, it's not an inhabitant. It's, it's sort of, at least when I'm in a pretty good place, you know, it's, just things floating, you know, thoughts floating, feelings floating, and and how much nicer it is when it's all happening in this huge sense of just sort of awareness, which isn't confined by the body at all. That's right. That's right. Just conditions coming together that cause things to happen, or you know, that this thought comes, this bodily sensation comes, all these I'm, things. I mean, it is a little complicated in the sense that you know, I mean, our brains you know, our brains are different, right? Yes. Like, so, I mean, there is something about there, you know, it's not like you and me are the same, like could be the same person, right? Or the same, whatever, even in Buddhism, I mean, even through a Buddhist lens, like, but um, yeah, I don't know. So I should probably stop talking right there. <laughs> Maybe I'll just say one thing. No, this is great, Evie. That um, what you sometimes people want to say. Well, if there isn't a self, does that mean that we're, we're all like 
there's no self and we're all somehow one big blob, or maybe it's the opposite that there's, maybe I shouldn't even say there's the opposite. So sometimes people like, wh where do we go with that? And I think what Dinatalakana um, Sutta is trying to point to is, well, there's all these things that we try to make a self out of and none of them actually work. None of them quite work. And but on the other hand, you know, maybe after we've read enough suttas, we know that the right answer is that we should say, there isn't a self, this can't really refer to anything real, etc. But we have the experience that it does. So the self is an experience. You know, sometimes it feels like we have a self. Sometimes it feels like there's an occupant of the house. That's okay. That's a feeling. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't feel like that. So right there is the evidence that it's not constant and uniform. Um, but it's not like it's wrong if you have the experience of a self. It happens to be an experience that we have. Yeah, maybe, can I build on that just a little bit here? Please. But um, Kim, what you're saying, I think it's fantastic because um, it depends, like, how are we defining self? And in, these, uh, in early Buddhism, they were defining it as something that you have control over and as something that is enduring. And something that's um, always pleasant, like if you're going to have a self, it shouldn't be painful. So the, some of the ways in which they're pointing to not self are saying they're not enduring, or we don't have control over it, or it's not always pleasant. Which are not the only options, but that's what the, that's what this sutta says. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is now sparking hundreds of hands. Um, I see at least, I've seen at least four. <laughs> Um, Dan, do you still have a comment? Because you had your hand up first. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, first, my first comment is that, that of course, uh, we can have our Zoom body and that can look like anything. As Heidi alluded to, we can completely remake ourselves for Zoom. So we always look good. Um, but apart from that, uh, I, I, had a, I always had difficulty with this particular translation uh, of the sutta. And, um, there's one that is in Glenn Wallace's book, which I'm not sure uh, whose translation it is, but consistently, for instance, uses body in the first paragraph and never uses the word revulsion, but always disenchantment, um, which I think is just such a much more um, understandable um, way of looking at this sutta and looking at what knows what no self might be, and that the liberation from the enchantment you know, is what leads us to um, be free from self and free from the necessity of constantly making different selves at different moments. So that's all. Yeah, thank you. Very good. Um, we could, because of this topic, it can go on for a while. <laughs> so maybe we would take um, one more comment and then, um, because if some of what we're talking about tonight may address some of this. Um, so I saw Heidi's hand after Dan. So um, I have the real uh, amazing treasure of having handwritten journals that go back from 1972. Wow. Every, every night I, I write in my journal. And I've been typing them up to have them in a searchable Word document. And I've just gone back lately to the early ones in 1972. So 
It's my relation of what I was doing and thinking and feeling 48 years ago. And clearly it was me, you know, there's some memory of those things, but often very different than what I recorded at the time. And often my, my memories may have attached blame to myself or others of some of those events, not really understanding the causes and conditions that may be even recorded in my journal. So it's hmm. very interesting to see the process of memory, first of all, and how totally fallible it is, how, how completely I've reshaped stories, often to my own advantage <laughs> you know, in retrospect. I, I look a lot better than, than I did at the time, you know, as I remember it. And um, it's really an interesting way of being able to reflect on my life and on my, my consciousness and the continuity of consciousness. And, and it truly is just a process. So I'm, I'm really enjoying the, the, the whole examination. It's not always comfortable or pleasant or not embarrassing, but it's, it's really a worthwhile thing to do. Hmm. Thank you, that's amazing. I know. I have that, <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, then that, that right there is an expression of wisdom <laughs> and uh, understanding this, this process. So why don't we transition then to um, Diana teaching about wisdom leading to awakening. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. This is uh, such a, a rich topic. Uh, Kim, maybe you and I should just teach a whole course, like on not self, and look at it and unpack it and talk about it. Uh, Evie has a thumbs up about it, right? Because it's it's something that's really rich and deep and different uh, elements about it. Yeah. So um, some of what we uh, did last week was uh, looking about what are the conditions that come together. Uh, when we have um, an experience and we were using a, an experience of blame because that often when we're blaming is um, an obvious experience of uh, if, whether we're blaming ourselves or blaming others. It's an obvious sense of um, feeling constricted and uh, setting up a kind of a me versus the world, us versus them uh, type of situation. And But to recognize that some of the, the, the conditions that create that experience helps kind of unpack it and helps um, uh, loosen maybe the, the constriction around that. And of course, that's, we could say is wisdom, seeing the conditions and that uh, support a particular view or a particular experience. And then when we see that, to see the effect that that has. So here's a quote from um, the suttas. Uh, this is one that I like kind of, because I just like to imagine this. Just as the footprints of all living beings that walk fit into the footprint of the elephant, and the elephant's footprint is declared to be their chief by reason of its size. I Googled this, by the way, an elephant's footprint is about like 19 inches. You know, that's pretty big. <laughs> So just as the footprint of all living beings fit into the footprint of the elephant, so too 
Among the steps that lead to enlightenment, the faculty of wisdom is declared to be their chief for the attainment of enlightenment. So wisdom is what's going to bring some awakening, some freedom, some peace, some ease, some lessening of uh, constriction, kind of what, what we were talking about this last week. And in this tradition, kind of the Buddhist tradition, that we would say that wisdom is the gateway to liberation. And so we might like uh, unpack a little bit, well, what is wisdom and how can we cultivate it? How can we create the conditions in which um, it can support us? I think all of you know that wisdom is a natural capacity that we all have. It's not like some people have it and some people don't. But one way to consider or think about uh, wisdom is that it's this capacity to see with some, some clarity, this is helpful, this is not helpful. That's kind of one way we can think about wisdom is to be able to make that discernment, to make that uh, distinguish, um, to be able to tell the difference between what's helpful and what's not helpful. And, one measure of uh, wisdom uh, that we can consider for ourselves is to the extent that we can get ourselves to do things that we don't like, but we know that it will be, it's helpful, will result in happiness, will result in greater freedom or peace, or in the same way, um, wisdom can be the ways that we can refrain from doing the things that we like doing, but we know that they will are not helpful, or don't uh, create the conditions for a life in which we want to do, a life we want to live. So that's one way in which, you know, kind of just using everyday language, which we might understand uh, wisdom, and the way that we can kind of see it playing out in our lives. But wisdom at its best, it comes from this, like, a direct experience, or this maybe this deep investigation of life as it is right here and now. So it's not just reason, it's not just rational thought. It, it doesn't require book learning and study. It requires our paying attention to our lives and having this question maybe, or this framework of what's helpful and what isn't helpful. What's And then in the Buddhist language, we can use words like skillful or wholesome or blameless, some of these types of things to help guide. So if there's, um, if we're relying too much on knowledge or something, or rather than just wisdom, sometimes these can get conflated, knowledge and wisdom, then there, and we can notice this in ourselves, if there's a little, we find ourselves having these, um, they're usually not um, obvious, I'm speaking from experience, they're like nuanced, these quiet ways, maybe early in our practice, we kind of thought like, well, I can just think my way to some enlightenment, to awakening, right? As soon as I just figure this out, right? There's, it can be this kind of uh, thinking like, well, okay, if I just probe in here and really understand this uh, teaching or something, then, and certainly that does lead to some deeper understanding and sometimes those aha moments that we do from study can really support um, the path towards greater awakening but wisdom isn't just uh, 
book knowledge. I think probably all of you know this. And also, it's um, if we are familiar with the teachings of the five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, that there's often the teaching that uh, faith and wisdom balance themselves, energy and concentration balance themselves, and mindfulness is kind of the one that's noticing when they're out of balance. So wisdom can really uh, lead to awakening when it's balanced with faith. And so um, one way we can notice this is if there's this quality of this genuine inquiry, like this wholehearted, maybe I could use this word curiosity or questioning about what's happening, as well as is this helpful kind of a question. But it also has this steadiness and this humility with this uh, beginner's mind. And then when this wisdom is developed, things are revealed, maybe we could say, or discovered or realized, as opposed to our figuring it out. So it allows us to come to a place where we allow experience to show itself, to show its nature to us. And when it does that, we start to see some of the characteristics or some of the underlying building blocks of experiences and these underlying building blocks through which we build this conventional world and through which we build a sense of self. We also can see some of the underlying, like maybe uh, roots of greed, hatred and delusion. And then when we see this, when we see some of these underlying building blocks, there's, um, we can even call this an insight. And one way we can define an insight is it's a, an, a way of seeing or an understanding or a realization that brings a decrease in dukkha, that uh, undermines dukkha in some way so that it cuts or melts or somehow does away with um, the dukkha or the, the, um, that which is underlying the dukkha, that which the dukkha is relying on. So this comes with, um, this comes with experience. And of course the insights that we might um, often have are um, that things are impermanent, that they have a call, they're not satisfactory and they don't have a self, they don't have an inherent existence. There isn't a, a self to them. So it's not a belief, it's so much, it's more like a, an understanding that um, maybe I, here, here's an analogy that I like. That um, imagine that one day you're out walking and um, you turn the street corner and you hear this really loud and menacing growl. And you look and there's this ferocious and hungry looking tiger that's in front of you and it's seemingly about to leap. And of course, <gasps> like there's some terror and maybe you run, maybe you scream, maybe you leap, whatever it might be. But then you notice on closer inspection that, oh, 
this is actually a holographic projection. And oh, there's the speaker right there from which the sound is emitting. So then your relationship completely changes when you realize like, oh, this is just a projection. And this is just a speaker. Then you don't, you're not afraid anymore. And maybe you're even curious, like where, where's the, um, the cord to turn this off or, you know, whatever it might be, right? It's a completely different experience. So, so having insights in some way is seeing in this radical way the impermanent, inconstant nature of the world that we live in and seeing that all the ideas and concepts that we're using and that we live by are just that, ideas and concepts. And to see the unsatisfactoriness, the stressfulness, the dukkha, the suffering that is integrated in the, in the way that we often are see, hear, or think. And then when this happens, when this type of an insight, letting go just happens. It's just natural that there's this letting go with this different type of um, understanding, with this different type of seeing things differently after an insight. You don't have to make letting go happen, it just happens. And then if letting go has been deep enough, the attachments just let go. And then the attachments might come back, but now there's something different. Now having had that experience of not having attachments, then there's this having attachments gets thrown into highlight because we have something to compare it to. And now that we know that it's possible to see through things or to see them in a different way with insight, then it's easier to, to uh, trust or to have some faith or to appreciate that uh, this deep letting go can happen and help create the conditions in which it might happen. And of course, this deep letting go is, um, is a way we could talk about awakening some deep experiences of freedom. So maybe I'll stop there. And Kim will talk about this some more. So she'll pick up with this. But now we'd like to um, allow you to have an opportunity to uh, speak amongst yourselves about this um, idea of wisdom is something that can be cultivated and developed, and it um, it supports the arising of insights. We can understand insights as a lessening of dukkha, so that an insight is like a new understanding, a new way of seeing things. That's a lessening of dukkha, and insights also can promote or create the conditions in which there's a really deep letting go. And this deep letting go is a way in which we can understand awakening. So I offered one um, definition of insight is that which uh, lessens dukkha. And it's also something that 
um, promotes or creates the conditions for letting go. But what is one way that you understand insight? Like what is a like what what is it to have an insight? What does that mean? Uh, what does it feel like? Uh, what supports it? Um, how do you know if something is uh, um, an insight? So there's kind of there's a number of different ways to go in there, but to just um, to discuss this question of what is an insight, the, um, sometimes we use this word to mean lots of different things, but in your experience, is there a way in which um, an insight is different than just a new understanding? but it's something that can helps create the conditions for something new to arise. Okay, so Kim, um, um, let's see. So maybe, I don't know how many minutes you have this for, like maybe 12 minutes or 13. Okay, we can do 12. I need to make one little change. Um, We don't have, I don't, we could have do what you said as well. I didn't know what you had to put there or group. Okay, just about there. Okay, so um, we're ready. So maybe I'll say that uh, one way to do this is um, to do it in this, what we call kind of like the spiral format, where one person, you don't, they don't need, the first person who goes doesn't need to say everything, just say one or two comments. And then um, it goes to the second person and they say one or two things and it goes to the third person, goes to the fourth person, and then it comes back around. And having um, heard it, heard other people, then there might be a new understanding that arises having heard other people, as opposed to you were saying absolutely everything that you know about it. Um, just say a little bit and then it can go to the next person. And this way people can create something new of allowing themselves to be influenced. And we can do this by uh, birth month. So the person that's born in January would go first and the person that's born in December would go last. It's a little, a little more difficult when you're not physically sitting in a circle. Okay, that's that, so have fun. Okay, so welcome back. Kim, do you, do you want to lead us in this next part? Nope. <laughs> so we would just love to hear from all of you about how was it? Uh, how uh, was there some aha moments or maybe unpacking this idea of insight made you think about it a little bit differently or um, would anybody like to share? And Lydia, did I see your hand up? Yes. Um, we had so much fun. Um, <laughs> we at first were not sure what's the definition of this insight because we kind of use freely the insight, wisdom, intuition, you know, but we agreed that 
doesn't matter what the definition we put on that. That's the experience that make us to pay attention to our practice or there's one thing or things we want to, um, how do you say, it's, it's different than our habitual um, the pattern. And it's just so much fun when we go around it to, um, to ex give example and trying to um, explore what is, the, what is the inside, make it much richer instead of just, oh, inside is such authoritative terminology. <laughs> Nice, nice. Thank you, Lydia. Yeah, it's right. This is part of the joy of kind of like practicing together is exploring these things together. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else have a comment, something they'd like to share? Jerry's hand is up. Oh, hi, Jerry. Sorry, I didn't see you. You're hiding down there in the bottom. <laughs> You're still muted, actually. Just that um, Lydia gave a very good summary. Uh, I think that uh, we agreed, at least two out of three, I wasn't sure that the insight, wisdom, or intuition, whatever you want to call it, um, it doesn't lead necessarily to absolute immediate change. But you, at least my point uh, uh, one, uh, is it's gradual, but you sort of know it's going to lead there when it, when it rises into awareness. In other words, it has a depth or a... Uh, it has a quality to it, but it doesn't mean that by tomorrow, you know, you will have made major changes. It's sort of, it's, so it's a process. Uh, uh, and I think that summarizes, uh, it's hard to summarize and not just project what I was thinking, but uh, there was some agreement on that actually. Great, great. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, and you don't have to summarize. We, that's a lot of pressure to put on anybody, right? So hopefully you guys are having a good conversation and you can just share what, what some nuggets for you that were meaningful or something. And yeah, so are there some other comments? Did you guys have it all figured out? Um, so we had a lot of fun too. Um, and as soon as we finished, um, I was really struck by how much, you know, the language, uh, when we say insight, um, we, I just have this sense, and I remember in early years of practice, this sense that this is something that I was going to get, like right now, it was gonna, and I was going to know, I was going to know about it. And, um, you know, just really to sort of echo what Jerry is saying, that it has a cumulative quality and a deepening quality. And so, and it's very connected to um, being, to knowing where the suffering is and to be sensitive to when the suffering has lessened because of something that I've let go of, but it can take a long time. And so the, it is such a, very much a process. And, um, and I think that uh, as it evolves, the, we're more aware of the conditions that arise that create the suffering and more able to 
act skillfully by not grabbing a hold of that. Yeah. You know? And um, and 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 how I'm actually find myself being really gratefully grateful that 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 process is kind of a prolonged one because there's more knowledge um, uh, that uh, that arises in that process than if there were some miraculous zooming lightning bolt of insight. Yeah, thank you very much, Dan. Um, Eddie, I see your hand. I, I just, um, there's an analogy that uh, Gil Francois uses sometimes that I find really helpful is that if you're lost in the jungle and you just accidentally stumble out, like, oh, okay, I found my way. But then you don't know how to get out the next time you're in the jungle. But if it's a little bit uh, longer process, then you're learning as you go and then you can find your way out the next time. Thank you, Dan. Evie. Well, so this, I didn't come to in our group, but I just came to by listening to both Lydia and Dan and Jerry. And I guess I'm realizing that I have sort of have had two different classes of insight. And one of them true definitely is boom. Okay. I see like this will absolutely transform me like soon, like suddenly oh my God, this is how I'm going to, when I was, I mean, it's funny, this has come up twice now tonight, 18 years old. And I realized like, how do I become not anorexic? Like, like it was like, boom. And there it was. And it's like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. It, this is crazy. And it absolutely is the right thing to do. And then when I came out, when I finally fully came out um, as a lesbian, like, boom, like, I mean, I like, you know, like I'm shaking on the floor crying. It's like, oh yeah, there it is. And even just the other day, like a very small insight, but I, I won't explain it. It takes too long to explain, but it's like, oh, duh. Well, so, you know, and it's interesting, but well, when I think about insights in the context of sort of general suffering or general like Buddhist practice, um, you know, Vipassana practice, then I feel like it is more of the kinds of things that everybody else is describing and these sort of slow burning, um, deeper, deeper round, you know, sort of, I mean, there's all different ways to describe it. But so I guess I'm realizing in my experience, I've like, there's sort of two categories and one of them absolutely is immediately transformative, no question. And the other one more spiral maybe or something like that. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. Okay. What do you say we go for a break? It's uh, 7.25 and we'll take uh, 10 minutes and come back at 7.35. Start again. All right, so welcome back. Welcome also to the uh, cats. I've seen several cats. Yay for kitties. <laughs> they can meditate with us too, because um, we're going to start a, a guided meditation now. So go ahead and find a posture where you'll be able to meditate for a little while. Settling in, letting your body find a balance. If it's comfortable to do so, you can close your eyes and just bring your attention back inward.
Maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. Allowing the body to relax a bit on the out breath. Softening anything that's willing to soften. Maybe the shoulders, belly, jaw, the legs or the feet. I'm just taking a moment to scan through the body and invite ease. Maybe as we soften, we can also direct some energy into the spine so there's a sense of alertness uprightness in the middle and everything else just kind of hangs off of that. Noticing the breath coming in, going out. Just noticing if right now the breath is deep or shallow, long or short. It doesn't need to be any particular way, but encouraging breath that feels simple, easeful. Supportive of staying present. And in the mind also, a similar kind of stance, a sense of uprightness and alertness in the mind and also ease. To whatever degree possible, connecting in with what feels natural, having some confidence that whatever's happening in your body and mind, it's just fine to be with that. Maybe even smiling a bit at our experience. 
The mind of wisdom is a friend to the body and the mind. So we'll be sitting for a little while and then I'm gonna offer some words into the space a little later on. The encouragement is to rest with a sense of trust in the flow of the body, the mind, all the little thoughts and feelings can be like a stream. We just Feel the flow of them going by. Sensing that it's of deep value to be with the body and the mind just as they are.
And here are some words about the path. As we learn to play this complex instrument of bones, flesh, nerves, impulses, thoughts, and feelings, we trace a path that weaves its way like a channel through the landscape of our experience. It is guided by an intuitive yearning for what we value most deeply. Its space is the openness we are able to tolerate within our hearts and minds. It is sustained by the networks of friendship that inspire us to keep going. The path follows the contours of our life as one day turns into the next. It is found amidst the most mundane of circumstances as well as the most sublime. To create a path is to become intimate with the space opening up within, around, and before us. This intimacy comes from the mindful awareness of what is unfolding in our body, feelings, minds, and worlds from moment to moment. We get used to the taste, the feel, the texture of the path. It ceases to be something to which we self-consciously aspire. When we stray from it, we feel its loss as an act of self-betrayal. Just resting a bit with this flow. Path is found right here in this flow. Okay, so Diana talked very beautifully about how wisdom leads us to letting go and to having an experience of non-attachment that becomes then a reference. It makes it easier to see the places where there is attachment just as when we have a sense of the path, it's easy to feel it's loss. It's not there. And so we 
start to discern in this way what's path and what isn't. And some of you have talked a little bit about insights that you've had, things that come to you in practice. And I, I know perhaps you talked about that in the breakout groups. Whatever our deepest experience is, becomes a reference point for us. And it's important to honor, therefore, your deepest experience to really take it seriously in a sense and allow it to um, be something that pulls you farther along the path. We don't need to attach to it because there will probably be a deeper experience later. But um, each one that we have, we honor and use as a reference point to then take the next step of the path. So what is it that you know that you're sure about, that you're really sure about? When we have an insight, it shifts our view. You know, that's one of the qualities of an insight. And you might remember that view is the beginning of the Eightfold Path. It starts with view. So with any shift, the path begins again from a new perspective. It's kind of a spiral. So we find that when we have this shift in view, then we have different intentions coming out of that perspective. And then that leads us to take different actions, which opens up the possibility for different kinds of mental development. And that will maybe lead us to another insight at some point. So this is the evolution of right view as the path goes on. Right view isn't a, a view that we can write down and have. It's whatever view is right for us now and it's gonna change as it evolves. Probably all of you have undergone some of these shifts along your path. You know, maybe Certainly, most people at some point when they encounter meditation in the path, they turn inward more than they did before. Now they start realizing, oh, I have to pay more attention to my mind and my intentions. And, you know, mindfulness really helps to bring the attention, turn the attention around from always having an outward focus to in something of an inward focus. Often we realize that our prior kind of rush out into the world to do things was not totally serving us. So we slow down and meditate more and consider our life. Maybe you've gone through several such iterations. I don't know. You, um, some people quit their job and start a whole new direction or some people go on a lot of retreats or go out into the world, realize they need to serve. They weren't serving before. All kinds of things happen, and they're all good. You know, as long as it feels like it's the right direction, it's kind of going along the path. So life on the path of awakening, living a Dharma life, doesn't have to look any particular way. Now, we probably have some ideal or idea of what it should look like. We often go through some of those. We model ourselves on somebody that we admire or we take up some idea from a book about what we think this is supposed to be. And that can be good for a while. But then 
Um, in the end, it doesn't have to look like anything in particular, as long as it's ethical. That's that's a, maybe a common basis. But some people become more active, some become less active, some change their jobs, some don't change anything about their lives outwardly, but there's a huge change inside. So it's important not to limit yourself into what you think it needs to be. Jack Kornfield um, writes in an article about different expressions of enlightenment. Whatever our gate to enlightenment, the first real taste, stream entry, is followed by many more tastes as we learn to stabilize, deepen, and embody this wisdom in our unique life. Each person manifests enlightenment with his or her or their own flavors. So there's a way in which we're finding our flavor um, as we go along. And so part of that, part of our job on the path, you know, this discernment that Diana talked about, um, part of what that is about is discerning how we're turning out (laughs) at a given moment and being willing to go with that. Sometimes there's some courage involved in that. Um, The Zen teacher Misha Merrill says, you might think you are becoming a chocolate cake, but then you turn out to be a steak. So who knows? You're vegetarian, this is a problem, right? So, you know, there's all kinds of, you never know, right? So it's, this is, um, it's not exactly like, what color is your parachute? Because um, that's a little bit of a cognitive exercise that kind of relies too much on thought and analysis. And it assumes that, that there's a, a self who's wearing the parachute and who's going to take charge of the, their life, um, sort of going forward with a plan. So uh, maybe the, the Dharma life, the path is built more on our immediate actions and it takes shape as we walk it. So it actually doesn't exist until we step forward and do it. But, um, and this is important, if we do step, it must come forth. So sometimes we don't step forth because we're worried, oh, I'm going to take this step and nothing's going to happen. It has to happen. There has to be a consequence of that. So there can't be nothing. So go ahead and step forward well and um, keep paying attention because it won't be the last step. Um, So consider this this verse from the Samyutta Nikaya. This forest is called bewildering. How does one travel through it? Straight is the name of the path. Fearless is the name of the destination. The chariot, called noiseless, is fitted with Dharma wheels. Conscience is its bench, mindfulness the upholstery. The Dharma, I say, is the charioteer, and right view runs ahead. Whoever has such a vehicle has, with this vehicle, approached Nibbana. So here we have a a chariot image, but there, there isn't really a you. The, uh, the Dharma is the charioteer and the Dharma is also the wheels of the chariot. That's kind of interesting. So, um, and we're, you know, the forest is bewildering. It's like, what if we didn't get an instruction manual when we were born for dealing with our mind and body. And so we have to figure out how to do that. And there's this sense that um, though, that there are things that we can assemble 
into a, a vehicle uh, to use along the path of awakening. So the Dharma is the charioteer. I don't think this is meant as a supernatural kind of thing. Um, exactly, um, turn, turning our life over to God or some such. It it's maybe means more that our, just that our orientation is different from, a, from the conventional aims. You know, we're, we're being guided by something that's not, not the usual way. There's a, um, there's a tradition later that comes out in later Buddhism where people who are awakened um, sing a song when they, um, when they have an awakening experience. Um, there's a group of these songs that are called Doha. Um, and there's, there's one, often they're kind of long and flowery and hard to understand. But there is one um, um, that's only one line long. So I thought I could probably fit that into this talk. Uh, and it, it's essentially the translation is something like, my mind is topsy-turvy. <laughs> so this is an awakening <laughs> experience. And I don't think he means confused. I and mean, that was what the forest was, the, bewilder, the bewildering. Instead, probably what's meant is no longer going by conventions or typical values um, in the same way. Um, so, you know, just to give kind of a concrete example, um, these days people are interested in being social activists and otherwise working for the good of, of people and, and of society. Goodness knows we need that at this time. And you can find a lot of conventional support for this out there, um, but most likely it will be wrapped up in wanting, anger, fear, and other kind of reactive emotions. That's the, the most common fuel for this kind of work. And so if something that you're doing when you're wrapped up in those, if something that you're doing doesn't succeed, then you feel deflated or you feel angry, or maybe you feel pumped up to try even harder next time. I don't know, but it's all a lot of a lot of that kind of energy. Um, an awakened person can also do social action, but from a Buddhist perspective, they would do it in line with the Dharma. The Dharma would be the charioteer behind all of that. So the mind would be most concerned with not causing suffering and also in not suffering itself. So it would engage in the work out of compassion and love and care may be flavored with wisdom of not exerting so much effort as to feel stressed, for example. Um, we would do it in a way that's balanced. And if the action doesn't succeed, then the mind would say, well, it's a good time for equanimity. So then it can assess what to do next. So it looks the same, quote unquote, on the outside. It's working for the good of others, trying to help society to get a little bit more in alignment so that more life will work for more people. But it's done from a totally different perspective on the inside. And it makes a big difference. So when, uh, in particular, we can be happy. <laughs> when happiness is no longer so tied to worldly conditions, awakened people are free to be happy a lot of the time. <laughs> so this verse, um, describes from the Majjhima describes the Arahant. Not clinging, they are freed with the destruction of birth and death. Happy, attaining safety, they are released here and now. 
They have gone beyond all fear and hate. They have escaped all suffering. So we not, may not be completely there yet, but the Dharma life kind of moves in this direction. You know, it, we might still have a family, a job, but the orientation of the mind is toward non-clinging. You know, not motivated by having a certain image or, you know, instead we'd be motivated by letting go of the self when it arises, for example, or by being of service or continuing to investigate ordinary sense experience in our everyday life. Um, that's of interest to an awakened person. So recall the, um, the quote that was read during the meditation. It says, the, the path is found amidst the most mundane of circumstances as well as the most sublime. So because the Dharma is in charge, not us, we can be surprised by what comes up on the path, uh, how life is flowing. It'll probably still all have all the same joys and sorrows of a regular human life. That's, you know, we're not promised heaven uh, in this path, but we'll see them so differently. <laughs> it opens up new possibilities. So it really comes down to, you know, this moment and how we're, how we're meeting this moment. Also from Jack Cornfield's article. So is enlightenment a myth? No, it is not far away. It is freedom here and now to be tasted whenever you open to it. The Buddha declares, if it were not possible to free the heart from entanglement, I would not teach you to do so. But because it is possible to free the heart, there arise the teachings of the Dharma of liberation, offered open-handedly for the welfare of all beings, aim for nothing less. So what's that gonna look like for you in your unique life? What is, the, what is your expression of what you know in the, the Dharma as it flows along for you? So maybe that's for your contemplation. We also have upcoming a chance for you to talk again briefly with each other. Um, and Diana will describe what that's about. Thank you, Kim. That, that's, that was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, so um, you know what? I'm thinking now that maybe I need to make a little change here. Funny how this works, right? That, uh, um, uh-oh. <laughs> Let's see if I can, okay. So um, now is an opportunity to just uh, explore this a little bit and you won't have um, a lot of time. We're gonna just have you for uh, maybe nine minutes. And this idea of what is a surprising new trait or activity that has come out of you as a consequence of practice. So as your practice has flowed along, what are some new things that maybe are surprising? Do you find yourself being a stake when you're thinking you're I don't know why I'm tickled by that. Diana, it looks like you're fading in and out a bit. Um, 
It's okay. She quoted what I said in the talk about the steak and the chocolate cake. But we can't start the breakout rooms until she comes back. There she is. Can you repeat the... the Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The, um, okay, so here we go. You're back now. Um, um, oh, I know what it is. So the question is, is there a surprising new trait or activity that has arisen from your practice? Did that come out okay? Am I, is my internet stable enough? Yep. Okay. So we'll do this with the spiral um, activity again, and a recognition that you won't have, um, you'll have less time this time. And maybe and, uh, you could do it in alphabetical order by screen name. Okay. Have fun. Oh. Okay, so here we are. Um, so this is again an opportunity to uh, share anything, any wisdom that might have come from that. Diana and I would love to know what is surprising about you um, having emerged from practice. Or um, just as a general reminder, this is going to be our last Q&A session. So if there's anything um, from this class or other ones that uh, you'd like to bring up now would be the time we have a little, a little time to talk now. So anything? Jerry. Um, I noticed, I know I'm, uh, we, it's not it's to sort of overcome this, but I noticed last week like a little bit of, oh, I don't want it to end. I don't want it to end. Uh, and so I'm feeling that again today, which uh, I understand this will end, and, uh, but uh, not wanting it to end is a very clear message from my heart of how much I value this program and everyone's participation. So thank you to everyone. Mm. Thank you, Jerry. Is that Michael? There's Michael that's on the phone. Yeah. Oh, and, and oh sorry, we Brian. have two Michaels. I thought I saw his screen lighting up as if he were speaking. Michael, are you uh, on the phone? Are you speaking? Um, I hope. Yes, there you are. <laughs> we, we can hear you now, yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I had nothing I wanted to share. I think I inadvertently got unmuted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but good to hear your voice. Thank you. And, and there was Brian, another. I think Brian, Brian had a hand. Okay. Yeah, I have a question that either one of you two would speak about. Um, from a few weeks ago, when we read the Sutta about how um, virtue leads to non regret, leads to this, leads to that, leads to enlightenment, basically. Um, just if either one of you would speak to that about from your own experience.
Diana, you're nodding. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I appreciate so much about that uh, sutta is um, this line, right? It's natural, right? Right. Uh, This word is just natural. And the way that I think about this is that certainly um, we have to do some effort. We have to do some work, right, to train the mind and train in ethics and we cultivate and develop things. But there's a certain time in which thing we don't we don't work anymore. Instead, it, we just go. And in my mind, kind of the way that I think about it is that it's like a, a slide in the playground, right? You're taking the steps up and then sliding down. And I would say that's definitely has been my experience. You like to go on retreats, for example, at the beginning, retreat practice is hard and it's you know painful in the body and it's just really difficult. But then um, somehow it just kind of gets easier. The mind and the body find a groove, I guess, or something. And then it just feels like things kind of flow a little bit more. But um, and I'm sure all of you have this experience that maybe happens, maybe this idea, you go up the ladder and maybe you slide partway down and then, oh, you go up the ladder and you slide and then you just feel like maybe there's times when you're just going up the ladder all the time. So there's this, you know, it's cute to say you go up the ladder and slide down, but it doesn't quite work that way, that it's often a little bit of effort and then effortless effort sometimes people say, and then things just unfolding. And I would say that the art of practice is knowing when to put in that effort to cultivate or develop. I'm not sure, is that what you were looking for, Brian? Or? Um, yeah, I mean, it seemed like my reading of that one was it made it seem like the only effort involved was in the first step, you know, like virtuous behavior, and then it all follows from the virtuousness and... <laughs> And the non-regret, and then the, yeah. 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 It hasn't really been my personal experience that that's what my life was. Yeah, so gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, concentration. We do see that in the suttas a lot, flowing to the other. I I would, sometimes I, I... Maybe sometimes it's there and sometimes it isn't. Maybe that's what I can say my my practice, just like what you were saying, Brian. I don't know, Kim, if you have something you'd like to say. Maybe just one thing to add in um, is that I think one way the sutta can be read is that it emphasizes um, that mostly what we're doing is removing things along the path. And it's not that we're adding things and getting things and building something up because that's our, kind of the natural way our mind operates is that we think we have to we don't have it so we have to get it um, and so this sutta i think maybe strikes at that part of the mind by saying actually what you need to do is is you know stop doing the things that are unvirtuous and then it will be easy to not have so much remorse and then um, if we're looking we can see that there's some um, gladness in that and so there's sort of a sense of there's, um, uh, we're not, we don't need to create and build and gather, but more that we're letting go. It's a path of letting go. Thank you.
anything else on your on your mind? Betsy. And then yeah. Well, one of the things that came up for, well, the first thing that came up for me was the surprise in being in my own breakout group. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was left so, over from the first one. Yeah, I kind of figured that and that was okay. And there was, you know, no judgments, no blame, no animosity around that. It was like, okay, I'm in my own group, so I'm just going to make some notes. <laughs> um and one of the things that um, has been surprising in my practice is um, actually recognizing that, okay, like when I first started this, you know, we have, we have all these lists and the Eightfold Path is the main, to me, the main list. And you're starting to go through the list and you know, okay, so we're making effort, we're looking at our intention, we're looking at our speech, we're, you know, looking at all these different things individually. And then as time goes on with the path, it, it just feels a lot more fluid in a flow between where the energy needs to go or where the awarenesses are happening. And it's it's certainly not a linear path it's it's kind of a, a just a flow between all the spokes in the wheel and so that's kind of refreshing um and yeah it just feels very natural nice Thank you. Thank you, Betsy. And uh, you're pointing to something. Sometimes when we see these lists or we read suttas, we um, have this idea. It's like, is this really how it's supposed to be? Like so neat and tidy? One, two, three, four, right? And something that I, I thought about too, when you were using the analogy of the ladder and the, the slide, and it's like, yeah, okay, you're climbing up the steps of the ladder and you start going down the slide and all of a sudden you stop, but maybe you're actually climbing over to another ladder and going up a few steps there and sliding down in the flow and then you change ladders again. And it just, you know, it's, it's an ever revolving flow. And yeah, it's nice. flowing nice. waters. <laughs> Cindy has her hand up and that'll be the, the last one because we have a few final comments. Um, I like the image of the ladder and the slide. I think um, before being introduced to practice, I felt like I was just on a ladder <laughs> all the time. And, um, and then after practice, you know, after practicing for a while, there were, there were moments of, you know, like insight and moments where of letting go really and of things dropping away. Um, but again, it's not linear. So then, you know, it's like winds come in and, and 
I get caught up in it. And, and then there's the practice that helps for that, for the mind to settle. And for me, you know, for that feeling of getting entangled, like the threads start to dissolve and, and there's more freedom there. So that's been uh, my experience with um, the path and I'm really grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. You're welcome. Great. Well, thanks to all of you, actually, for making this course what it was. Just as a brief overview, you know, we covered so much territory, but, you know, we talked first about a couple of different um, ways to engage that are we have found to be fruitful. You know, one is the idea of inquiry and asking questions and even making our life into a question. And then also um, to take guidance from the wisdom teachings from the suttas, um, because these are uh, reliable and um, engaging with them uh, has a certain quality to it that um, keeps us grounded in something that's uh, had a lot of long-term benefit shown to to be true. And then we looked also at the sort of the main areas of teaching, the main areas of training that we do. So um, ethics and relationship, and then uh, samadhi and the heart, and then wisdom and insight. And then today's session was on awakening and living a dharma life, you know, combining all of that. And I think all of your comments were the, the best about that, the way it becomes a flow, the way it becomes something that we understand that we don't have to go up the ladder all the time and we can let the, maybe let the Dharma be the charioteer a little bit. So, you know, it, in this way, we actually become, it's not at all uh, something that we can do only for ourselves. And, you know, if, just living this way, we become a model for other people, a model of sanity, a model of care, a model of connection and ethics and um, living a, a life that makes sense in, even in this wild world. So if Diana and I had a, any hope, it would be that we've conveyed some small bit of this and that you have some confidence in living a Dharma life. So I want to express my appreciation also to Diana for uh, a wonderful opportunity to teach together. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks to everyone. Yes, and thank you, Kim, and thank you to everybody. It's been such a delight. Oh, Brian has a little heart there. That's, I don't know if I know how to do that, but it's very, if I did, oh, here we go. That's very nice, showing my appreciation. <laughs> Oh, look at this. A number of us have hearts. <laughs> There's something. Uh, Evelyn has a little celebration. Uh, uh, that's, that's, that's very nice. Yeah, what, what a pleasure it was to kind of like to share the Dharma, to explore it together, and to kind of go on this journey together. So deep bows, deep bows of appreciation. We do hope to have some kind of a follow-up. Um, we had so much fun on this, but we, um, and we'll let you know if, if and when we come up with another course in the spring. Um, meanwhile, I guess there is a, um, starting just a couple days from now, there is a course through the Sati Center on equanimity. Um, put the link in there in case it's of interest. Um, 
it's a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday class coming up this week for a little burst. Some of you are in it actually. Um, is that everything? I think that might be everything. I guess I could put in the um, Donna links also, just in case that's of use. That's it. Thanks everyone. Maybe um, Diana could just, I know we're a little over, but dedicate the mirror for us. Yeah, so may all the goodness that brought us here together and that uh, got ignited and warmed and shared, may all the goodness, may it be for the benefit of all beings everywhere, without exception. So thank you, thank you. It was such a delight, such a delight to be with you all. And if you'd like, you can unmute yourself. Oh, you are mostly unmuted. Yeah, everyone. <laughs> say thank bye. you. Bye bye. Thank you, Diana. Thank you so much. Bye. Everything. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> bye. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate